0: Well, good morning. I I can tell there's a a bit of hesitation in your response. And uh, how many had a lot of turkey? (laughs) He's still sleeping, I think. Still tired. We're glad you're with us. Uh, We kind of wanted to continue this theme of thankfulness, even with the choir, that kind of uh, Caribbean beat makes you a little wanting the uh, southern climate a little bit, hopefully. But we're thrilled as we kind of move and transition into this uh, season of Christmas. I don't know if uh, it's just me. It could be. Um, But I find that whenever I'm kind of in relationships, working with people, there is potential for conflict or strife. It could be just me. I mean, yesterday... Uh, Well, really earlier this week in talking with my wife and, you know, talking about getting Christmas lights up on a particular tree that the lights seem to go out every year. Anybody have those kind of Christmas lights? And and, I mean, who loves putting up Christmas lights? Come on, there's a few of you. It's just not my favorite. And it's, you know, in working together, that kind of situation is rife with potential conflict. And I remember my wife saying to me, because last year, you know, I've been trying to get into this attitude of, this is the best, this is a blast. And and so, she's usually down there holding the lights, and I'm trying to put them up. This year, I did them alone. I had no one to get upset with but the tree. But, uh, you know, it's just interesting. Like, last night, we were making Sally Ann cookies. Anybody ever made Sally Ann cookies? Why? okay, well, it's not an easy thing to do. And my daughter was there and my wife, and I had my part. And I wasn't always doing my part well. That creates a little strife. But there's all those kind of things. Think about it in your life. Anybody ever hung wallpaper with a spouse? How many have um, gone over your financial books together? And there's all these kind of things, even within a family. How many, you know, want, you know, the kids' room clean? It, it's the nature of the game, in a sense, that in situations where we work together, there's the potential for conflict. In fact, what I find is interesting is we've been looking at this series, Unity, and, and, and really going along this whole path towards what does it mean to be people who are united and what does it mean to be spiritually one? As Paul says, um, unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, which is Jesus Christ. I, I asked those questions and, and as I was preparing these, this series, in fact, in the first message, I decided to go a different direction for the next three. And I wasn't quite sure as so I put together all three of them. But when I got to this one, being the last in this series, um, I knew we needed to talk about the fact that unity, what does it really mean to be diverse, different Many who are one. The Corinthian church was a church that Paul wrote a letter to, and it speaks directly to this. It was struggling with division. It was struggling with strife. There was envy. There was... There was jealousy. There, were, there was all kinds of things, competition um, that was going on that was creating this strife. And there were leaders who had outstanding abilities and, and, and attracted certain people to themselves. In fact, at one point in the very beginning of the letter, First Corinthians chapter 3, after Paul talks about what it means to have spiritual wisdom, what it means to be brought together by the power and the grace of God in chapter 3, he finally says, brothers and sisters, I couldn't address you as spiritual but I had to dress you as worldly, mere infants, babies. I had to talk to you like just little children. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. A lot of times we think about the fact that when he says something like milk, we're we're thinking, well, you couldn't get the solid food, which could be the difficult, more difficult doctrines, whether it be something like end type doctrine. That's not what he's talking about. Milk, when you think of a child, is something that you take, and the child, all they have to do is suck on to get the nutrients. Meat is something that you have to do when you're a bit older, which means you have to take that actual truth and that truth and begin to chew it in order to get the substance from it. He's basically saying, I couldn't deal with you as mature people who take the truth and begin to kind of take it into your system and, and, and try and figure out how, it actually, how God's um, truth applies with understanding to your very being and your relationships with others. That's a step that a lot of people don't want to take. They really just want to hear God's Word. They want to come to a place where they can hear it in a sense, listen to it, and then go and say, wasn't that great? But meat means that you take it, you hear it, and you begin to say, "How in the world does this apply in my life?" Not just from a message, but even in your own life, where you take God's word, or you 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 work together with other people, and you start to say, "What does this mean for me? What does my life What is it going to look like? How will it be different because of what I have just digested? Not just heard. The idea of hearing means coming with faith, which means digesting it into your system. So he says, "I." I can't just talk to you like adults. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, aren't you worldly? Aren't you acting like just mere men and women? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not acting like, basically, he's saying mere men, natural men or women, not people who have been supernaturally changed to move beyond what's natural to that which which is above from heaven. And so finally, as he goes through all these different conflicts through Corinthians, he deals with all kinds of different specific conflict situations. He starts to get to the end, and he gets to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he starts talking now. He says, one more thing. Let's talk about spiritual gifts. And he begins to talk about spiritual gifts. And really, spiritual gifts leads him into not just how gifts work, but how the body should work, how people working together should function. So that when he comes to this point, after he's talked about the rich versus the poor, gifted versus not so gifted, people who have a certain lifestyle and are willing to eat meat and others who aren't, and just on and back and forth, all these different things, he finally comes to verse 12. And he says, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, though the parts are many. Then verse 14. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Let's pray. Jesus, I would ask that you would take the words that, um, that are spoken and that your Holy Spirit would make them alive in our hearts and that, God, we would be people who take some of these things and chew on it and make it a part of our lives and grow deep in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me first just begin by saying, as I read this passage of Scripture, unity is a collection of parts in a living relationship. I kind of want to take a few uh, points here just to define unity so that we really understand what, what Paul has to say and, and what Scripture has to say. Unity is basically many parts in one alive body. People relating to one another in healthy and in living relationships. You see, how you define unity is incredibly critical. What is biblical, spiritual unity? Ever thought about that? What is biblical, spiritual unity? Not what you've maybe thought of or maybe what you've heard in the past or what you think a church should look like or what your home should look like. There's all kinds of unity, but what is biblical, spiritual unity? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12-14, through 14, Paul says this, This body, the body, is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. And now he goes into the diversity. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we are all given one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. Unity exists where there's life. Like a body, Paul says, it's a collection of different parts that are in a living arrangement together. And often I think we define, and the church defines unity, really as the absence of conflict. Or the absence of some kind of division. But what I want you to really notice is this. The absence of conflict according to the word of God is not necessarily biblical spiritual unity. It's really important to understand that. Let me give you two examples. The absence of conflict. If there is the absence of conflict, sometimes in places where there's no conflict, all that exists is indifference. There may be the absence of conflict, there may be incredible unity, but there's complete indifference. The idea that, you know, and and indifference is probably the most difficult thing to take, isn't it? When someone's in relationship to you or they're supposed to be in relationship to you and you, you speak to them and they just act like you're not there. And what will happen sometimes when people are indifferent and they don't respond, or maybe they're closed up emotionally and they don't know how to respond, the person who wants a reaction will get more... Well, basically, this is the natural reaction. They get a little bit more angry because they don't want indifference. They don't want a lack of response. They want some kind of response. And so they will get angrier and angrier until they get some kind of response out of you, correct? It's how the body works. It's not necessarily how the body works well. But it's part of the reality of of, of life. And so unity is not necessarily the absence of conflict. It is not the absence of, of conflicts. So if it was, you would find people who could live together indifferently. But you'll find that's not the way the body operates. Paul calls for showing honor and caring for one another. He even says in chapter 13, there's an excellent way which creates unity, which is love. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But unity is not just the, the absence of conflicts, because there could be indifference. The other aspect of it, if there was the absence of conflict, it could be that there's just death. Right? Things can be unified and, and still be dead. We call that atrophy. Eventually, that which looks united begins to just to fall apart on itself. Dead bodies don't seem to have any conflict, do they? With anybody, even with itself. In fact, the body or church that is dying, there's often quite a bit of unity. That's something I've noticed over the years, that when a church is in a path where it's not growing dynamically and actively engaged in extending the kingdom of God, it's possible that this dying body is really a unified body. But when you inject life into it, it can create all kinds of difficulty and problems. And so the absence of conflict um, can be present when there is death, but that's not the kind of unity the Bible talks about. Dead bodies, as I mentioned, especially in churches when they're dying, um, aren't attractive. I, I love what one commentator years ago I read, his name is D. Martin Lloyd Jones. He's one of my favorite authors and preachers of, of a, a generation or so ago. And he would, he would say in his commentary, specifically he had some um, commentaries on 1 Corinthians and Romans and other books, he would say that he would much rather have a church like Corinth that was immature, that was alive, and was in conflict. He'd much rather have that kind of a church than a church that you might read about in Revelation, the church of Sardis, where Jesus says, I know your deeds, you have a rep- reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I thought about that a lot. I would much rather be in a body that is, that is immature and is seeking to grow and is experiencing conflict and has leadership coming around it and seeking to help to learn themselves and with others to work through this in a way that brings about the kind of harmony and unity through love, than being in a church that's just dead. That has no life. And so the unity that we experience is not one that is around death or indifference. Unity is about a oneness of collected parts that are living with one another. And when there is life and where there is life, there will be strife. When there is life and where there is life, there will be strife. Every New Testament letter that Paul wrote, you can go through almost every one and you will find that there is some kind of conflict that he is dealing with. That's amazing. And and the one that tends to have the most unity that people look at in the Word of God is the book of Ephesians. But at one point he actually writes, I want you to do an an all-out effort to maintain unity because what you're experiencing right now, enjoy, be thankful for, love, appreciate but recognize that it ebbs and flows. Unity is about many who are one, alive together with all the stuff that comes with living in relationship with one another. And to think there won't be strife is basically Pollyannish. What you do with strife in your marriage, with your family, where you work, at your school, on a team that you may be a part of. And by the way, how many of you are from YZ in some way? Well, congratulations to your football team. Very good. <laughs> but it's how you handle strife. It's how you deal with conflict. One of the things that we're we're working on is 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 developing in our church church's culture of of peace. This idea that even though there will be strife, and we know there will be conflict that we will seek to to develop a culture of peace and there's a ministry that's called Peacemakers and and we've been working and asking and and been meeting with some people how do we begin to integrate this that becomes the DNA of who we are so that we have people who are trained when conflict comes whether it be in relationship with a spouse or in relationship with a child or in relationship with someone they work with or in relationship with someone they attend school with or in relationship with someone that they minister with or in relationship to anyone they will know some good biblical principles of how you deal with that in a way that at least moves it towards peace and unity and if you're interested in that um, we are going to be trying to get a small group together here in this next January or so so be watching for that some of you might be here here this morning saying I've got strife, you're talking about conflict and I really would love to know how I could have this spiritual, biblical kind of unity I would like to know how to do that now I would take a whole other message okay but I do want to encourage you, if you're in that place, um, to give a call to our office and, and you can talk with Beth Moorhead and she can set you up with people who have been trained in this ministry who are called reconcilers, who will help you actually think through and, and process through. And if need be, in some cases, actually sit down with someone else and begin to work through it. And I just I put that out there. That's, a, that's a, It's a great ministry. Unity is also what I call the diversity of parts in a growing relationship, not just a collection of parts in a living relationship, but it's also about the diversity of parts in a growing relationship. Unity is many diverse parts in a growing body. And the growth part of it is important. God loves unity. But you know what? God equally loves diversity. He creates all these incredible differences. It's so the way he's created the body. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12-14, through 14, Paul says the body is a unit. Though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. We're baptized into one spirit, into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we are all given one spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part of many. And then he goes on and he says in this passage of Scripture, If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. He goes on to say, there are all these diverse parts of the body that God made, and he loves them. And we're to celebrate our diversity. We're to celebrate that. And one of the ways that we do that is, first, um, one of the things I've learned earlier on in, in my ministry, I didn't understand and didn't even acknowledge some of the differences that that were around me. I I was not crazy about people who were detailed people because they would ask all these questions and I was kind of more of a visionary. I like to think the picture out there and, and then they would say, but yeah, but how about chairs? How many chairs will we need? Have you thought about maybe we need food? And when I was, I, first of all, I had a hard time acknowledging the difference. And then the next part is to accept that there is a difference. And then These are really important steps to acknowledge and then to accept and then to appreciate and go, wow, I'm glad you're asking those questions. Go figure it out. No, (laughs) I didn't realize one of the things I love doing is I love being able to see and understand and intuitively understand trends and to move those things forward and to help kind of jumpstart and energize and get things going. But. I also began to realize after a period of time and I began to acknowledge and then I began to accept and then I began to appreciate the fact that I need follow-through people. I need people who are just steady and remain on task and they love to stay with something and see it grow and develop and mature and move in a certain place. And, and after I get something going, I'm the kind of person who goes, well, what else? It's really important to understand that that God has placed all these different kind of people around us for the very purpose of helping us to grow, helping us to understand ourselves, helping us to understand one another, helping us to understand how we can accomplish things together because we need each other. The eye needs the hand and the foot needs the mouth. And then all the parts of the body are needed together. Our tendency is to push for the sameness. Not what I call biblical spiritual unity. It is the tendency of I think every person. Because there's a there's a there's a sense of security that if you can think like me and act like me and be like me, I feel okay. I mean it just just drives a lot of things. We 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 feel far more secure when a person thinks like us. We feel far more secure if a person isn't having some doubts. We feel far more secure if someone doesn't challenge the status quo. Biblical spiritual unity, though, is, is, and this is important to know, it is not uniformity. We are not identical. In fact, when you think about it, identical things are more a freak and abnormality of nature than they are natural. Isn't that right? Think about it. In fact, we're so in desiring to have things the same and identical and uniform that we are spending billions of dollars seeking to clone anything and everything, correct? This is a real move and push to try and and do that. But uniformity demands that people be identical. Such an atmosphere strives for people to have identical spiritual thoughts, identical spiritual ideas, identical spiritual convictions, identical spiritual emphases in their heart. So whatever becomes a person's passion, it has to be the passion of everyone else. And we don't allow for that kind of diversity, whether churches admit it or not. Many churches promote this idea of unity. They would rather say they don't. But this happens, I think, so naturally because it's the bend of all of us. It's the bend of institutions. What is super or the word supra means above nature or spiritual is diversity and difference. As Paul writes, now the body is made of one part, not of one part, but of many. And these parts are diverse. There are eyes, ears, arms, legs, so many diverse and different parts. And the problem with pursuing unity that is just merely uniformity is it doesn't allow for the individuality. That's how we started the service. We've been doing this every week where we'll stand up and we will pray a prayer of unity, holding hands. And today, some of you came in a little later Anyway, you, you know you miss a lot of good stuff when you come late, but it's okay. It's like I, I heard one time that uh, if you go to a concert, all, everyone's sitting in the front, but you go to church, everyone sits in the back. The cheap seats are back there, folks. Anyway. This whole idea of of, of unity is not that we're to become uniform. It's not we're identical. And when I had us hold hands and look at one another, even if you were to do that right now, you will notice there is far more diversity and difference by just looking at each other than there is unity. On the surface, specifically, there's just all kinds of differences. But when you get down to the core, we're all human beings who are people who need God and who need His grace and who need His Holy Spirit so that we can live out who He's created us to be. But with all these differences. And uniformity allows no differences. I must think what the congregation tells me to think. I must believe what the congregation tells me to believe. I must make my spiritual stand where the congregation tells me to make my stand stand. Even though we're all on different levels of knowledge, understanding, insight, and experience, and wisdom, we must be identical. Think about that for a second, and that just seems really kind of strange. Even though we all have different levels of knowledge, understanding, insight, experience, and wisdom, we must be identical. That just isn't reality. You don't even expect it of your children. You kind of understand it at a certain age. They may understand this, but you don't push them to understand it right now. They may act in some immature ways. They may act in some ways that even cause some consequences to occur to them that are negative. And if you're a good parent, sometimes you allow those. There are certain ones you don't allow because you, you know how how important that could be, to uh, how detrimental it could be. But for the most part, a good parenting is one that sees this immature child, sees this, the fact that they're making choices, allows for them to grow within a, a, a path of that, and understands each and every child's level. Understand, hopefully, men, that your wife think differently than you and wives that your husband thinks differently than you. And that when you got together for Thanksgiving, you realize not everyone was the same. People come from different backgrounds. That's what makes those whole family thing so difficult because everyone comes from their own family of origin with their own way of doing things and their own way of celebrating, and they all bring their luggage together and they sit around a Thanksgiving meal with all this luggage behind them and it comes out at times and it creates What? Joy. <clears throat> Where are you guys? And even though we come from different family backgrounds, and different cultural backgrounds, and different ethnic backgrounds, we push to be identical. And we don't celebrate and enjoy. We don't, we don't acknowledge and accept and then begin to appreciate the differences that are, are among us and the, the and the different levels of maturity the different levels of understanding, the different levels of seeing life. One may see it from a Western viewpoint, one from an Eastern, one may see it from South American, one may see it from North American, one may see it from European. And the reality is, one of the great things of the Gospel, one of the reasons the Gospel has traveled all throughout the world, throughout all the ages, is because it is above every culture. Praise God. And praise God, it's not limited by a Western culture. In fact, we're going to see huge changes in the years to come because you know what? There are more believers, more followers of Jesus in cultures outside our Western culture than there are inside it right now. And do you think that's going to bring changes in the next 20, 40 years? You better believe it because they look at life differently than we do. And we can get into this situation where we start going like this. You don't believe you. You know what? We better seek to come together, as the word of God says, with our differences and seeking to understand, understanding there is a Holy Spirit that we're called to to give our heart and our lives to that who through his word allows for us to begin to see what is truly of his word rather than what is of our own culture, our own understanding, our own family background. And God delights in our differences Because it causes us to grow into what matters most to him. And what do you think that is? What do you think matters most to God? Someday, when you are standing before him, what do you think will matter most to him? you think it's going to be, you're going to say, hey, look, I was involved in this business and I was able to build this business, I was able through this business to support all kinds of families and help them, and he'll, that's not bad, that's good. It may be that you have had an impact in, in some kind of ministry and you help people who are poor and all these different things. It may be that God has given you a gift and that gift has been able to impact people. But when you stand before God, what is going to matter the most it says in the Word of God, when, when Paul gets to the whole end of this whole thing of the body, he looks at us and he says, you know, when you stand before God, you know what will matter most? Is that you have become a loving person. That you will be formed for the whole purpose of the death of Christ on the cross was to bring together a people. It was, a, it was not just for you, it was for all of us, but that you will personally be formed and we as a body will be formed so that when someday God looks at us, he says, and he looks at you and he says, you have become formed into the image of Christ. Your character has become like his character. I look at you and today you are a different person than you were 20 years ago. In fact, you're a different person than you were 10 years ago. In fact, you're a different person than you were a year ago. In fact, you're growing because you're, you're taking the meat and you're beginning to, to process this truth and digest this truth and it's beginning to affect the way that you live and, and how you look at life and how you interact with people, And it's beginning to break down these, these habits and patterns. It's beginning to break curses from generations that you've carried. It's beginning to bring about a freedom in your heart so that you walk with God in such a way that His Spirit indwells you and you hear His voice and you walk in the presence of God. And you're filled with His love. And your character has become conformed to His so that you are full of love and joy and peace. And you are patient, right? You're kind and you're good and you're faithful and you're gentle. And you're even growing in your ability to control yourself at Thanksgiving dinners. Well, we shouldn't go so far, I guess. But anyway, so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, I've been talking to you about a whole bunch of stuff, all kinds of things. There's spiritual gifts. There's all this stuff that I've been talking about. But there's one thing that underlays it all, that is foundational to it all. Because someday when you stand before God, this is what is going to count. He said, "If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but a creaking, a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all His mysteries, making everything plain as day, and if I have the faith to to say to a mountain, jump, and it jumps." But I don't have love. I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr. But I don't love. It's gotten nowhere. So no matter what you say, what I say, what I believe, what I do. So no matter what I say, what I believe, what I do. I am bankrupt without love. And differences, folks, force us to love. It forces us to do what doesn't come natural. And so unity is not just a collection of parts in living relationship. It's a collection of diverse parts in a growing relationship around this whole concept of love. And I just wrote the last. It's an arrangement of parts in a dynamic relationship in a dynamic relationship. Unity, many diverse parts, in an active and dynamic relationship. We celebrate our differences, and Paul lists a number of ways. He says first, by specially honoring the weaker and less honorable ones. He's now beginning to say, here's how you can love one another in the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21 says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the hand, head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Isn't that neat? Special honor, because those who are weaker are less resourceful. guess think about it. Those who are weaker, those who are less resourceful than us, teach us something about God. They teach us something about how much God loves. You see, those that are weaker and don't have some of the abilities we have, Are those that show us sometimes in ways that we can never, ever ourselves experience how to trust? how in in their brokenness they lean on God. Often you can look at the weaker member and go, God, thank you for them being here. I read a letter a a week ago about a group that we have of physically um, and and mentally uh, challenged people who meet on Tuesday night. And and the the person who wrote the letter just talked about the incredible love that's displayed among that group. And I look at that group and I go, as I've seen that group and they form and they worship, they sing with their hearts. They're so engaged. I go, They really don't care too much in one sense about what they're singing. What they care about is just giving praise to God. And I'm shamed. And it says give special honor to those. And then he goes on and he makes another point in verse 23, verses 24, first part of it. He says, cover those who need covering, which is an interesting thing. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. We all know that we have parts of our body that we cover Uh, for the the reason of modesty. That we don't leave uncovered so that it doesn't bring shame or embarrassment. He says, And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts. They don't need special treatment. Special covering because those, just like parts of our body that are left uncovered, there are those in our body who who do to sinful choices or maybe through the choices of someone they're close to, it may be a child, feel shame. They feel guilt. They feel this sense of rejection. They feel so embarrassed. And what do we do? We can either do one thing. We can either look at them and judge them and go, I can't believe what a stupid choice. I would never make that choice. And we can leave them exposed to their shame. Or we can, as a church, learn to do this really well. And this is what I'm going to talk about when we get into the first of the year around Galatians and choosing how to do this, that we chose to do really well not to ever stand in judgment because Jesus himself said that if a person doesn't keep my word, I do not stand in judgment of them. Jesus says that. How can we? What Paul is making very clear is that one that's left exposed in shame and guilt because of what maybe choices they've made or choices their kids have made or choices they've made in their business, whatever it is, wherever it is, You know what the loving thing of the body is to do? It's to come around them with grace and love and to cover them with that and say your self-judgment and we will keep you from the judgment of others because you are loved by God. God loves you and He will take even what's happened here to help you grow. If you open your heart, you will grow deeper in your understanding of His love. And if you process that and you chew on it like me, you will begin to understand some of the reasons maybe you got there and we'll be there to pray for you because there's there's things that are attached generationally that need to be broken. If there's things in your life that have that have um, through your own family of origin that have set you up in this direction, not that you're not responsible, but will teach you, will come around, around you to help you to move, to become more like who? Christ, Jesus. I, uh, I love this, this last, I'm just going to read you this closing illustration here from Tony Dungy's book, Quiet Strength. Because as you come to the end of this chapter, of chapter 12, you know, he says some other things, but right before it, he, he says, God has combined, arranged the members of the body, and has given special honor, greater honor to parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. They should love one another, so that if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Special care, because the bottom line is we need each other. Tony Dungy writes, Lauren and I had taken in foster children when we were first married. This is when they were first married. They don't have any kids at this point. God has blessed us with material resources that would allow for us to take uh, care of more children than our three. He had at this point three children a little older in age. At the same time, I'm not always quick to make a decision, he says. Adding children to our family struck me as the kind of decision that was worth taking some time to contemplate. The fact that the process took some 18 months gave me some comfort. Having worked with foster care system in Pittsburgh, I knew the statistics. Well over half a million children were in foster care and countless more awaited adoption. We had helped some of these kids for a short period of time, overnight, a week, a couple months. But my wife wanted to help kids in a more permanent way. And I knew we could make all the difference in the world to at least one child. I needed to learn more and I wanted to think and pray through our decision. We made an appointment to visit adoption agency. That was his way of learning more. Our purpose was to gather more information so we could better evaluate our decision. As more of a formality than anything else, he says at the close of the meeting, we asked how long could we expect this process to take. The answer shocked me. If you're looking to adopt an African-American or biracial child, you can have one immediately. I was floored. My my mind raced. My time to think things through had just been tossed out the window. We I, um, we thought it would take a year and a half, he said to her. Oh, if it does, if you want to adopt a white baby or want to adopt inter- internationally. However, the need is so great for domestic minority children that we are pretty much always in need of adoptive parents. At that point, I knew my answer was clear. I looked for clear signs when making career decisions, but this was probably the clearest sign I had ever received. I guess God had been just holding back his clearest sign for something critical like children who needed a home. That way he knew that he could be sure I got it right. Adopting a child immediately was quite a transition to contemplate. As a family, we talked and prayed together about the impact of adoption and how it would impact our family. A couple months later, in August 2000, we adopted Jordan. When we took Jordan to get his first shots, we thought it was a little odd that Jordan didn't cry. Then one afternoon, when he was about five months old, I was home alone with him, probably engrossed in a football game, I'm afraid. When he fell off the bed, he had hit his head pretty hard, and he didn't cry. Then they noticed Jordan didn't react to other things that would normally cause pain and tears. So he says, we took him to the pediatric neurologist in Tampa and started asking more questions. We learned that unlike most babies, Jordan hadn't cried in the hospital after birth when he was given even eye drops. And after a series of tests, Jordan was diagnosed with congenital insensitivity to pain. Jordan is missing a gene, it turns out, and therefore doesn't feel pain the way other people do. But through Jordan's weakness, I have learned so much. Jordan has built this man's character jordan has taught this man to love through jordan i realize that god allows us to feel pain for a reason to protect us god uses many things to show us what to avoid painful consequences often teach us lessons quickly for example like most kids jordan loves cookies warm cookies certainly aren't bad for you at least in moderation but they are harmful if they're still in the oven Jordan would reach right in to pull out the piping hot cookie sheet with his bare hands. Then he would begin to eat the cookies without even realizing he was hurting his hands and mouth in the process. Even a trip to the emergency room didn't help him understand that he was injuring himself. Lauren and I have to teach him the consequences of right and wrong and dangerous activities in order to protect him. Pain isn't available to him as a teaching tool. Prior to this, I hadn't thought much about the way God uses pain to protect us from further negative consequences down the road. With Jordan, this has become obvious. Pain prompts us to change behavior but that is destructive to ourselves and to others. In fact, pain can be a highly instructive teacher. Jordan also has some other special traits, like an uncanny ability to process phone numbers. We view Jordan, our son, as a special blessing. Jordan personally illustrates for us some of the wonders of God and his plan for us. Watching the impact of that single missing gene reminds me how intricately each of us have been designed and created. Jordan has taught us so much, he says. We have grown so much. We have come to appreciate the differences, even in something like this child in, in, in responses of their son, Jordan. I'm going to ask you just to bow for a moment to your your hearts and heads. And we're just going to take the last part of this time and just praise God and just acknowledge how great He is, how big He is, how diverse He is, and how different He is His ways and our ways. And I'm going to ask you, to just stop and consider. I don't know what it is. I could pull out certain practical things, but you know what? God may have spoken to you specifically about one thing. It could be about taking uh, the Word and beginning to chew on it, making a difference in your life. It could be as simple as there's someone who is near you who is different that God is causing you to stretch and to learn to love and understand. Whatever it is, listen to His voice digest what He's calling you to understand and have Him lead you in becoming a more loving person. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.